Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here today with a beloved graduate of Biola who's just doing some wonderful work in the world of philosophy and thinking critically. Travis Dickinson is a professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University and the author of, author of a new book called Logic and the Way of Jesus, Thinking Critically and Christianly. Travis, thanks so much for joining us on the Think Biblically podcast. Uh, Sean, it's great to be with you, brother. Well, you gave me the privilege of endorsing your book, and I think yes, it's- which I'm very thankful for. Well, thanks for saying that. It's an excellent book and so needed right now for just a range of reasons. But before we jump into some of the particulars, just give us a 30,000-foot perspective of what is the goal of a book that's called Logic and the Way of Jesus? Yes. Well, my goal is really to sell a million copies. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the goal is, honestly, this this really comes out of my own journey. Um, I, it was very much a sort of transformative moment in my own life that I realized um, and was sort of challenged in um, thinking of faith it wasn't that I was an anti-intellectual, I think, but I just didn't sort of see faith in the intellectual life as something that kind of went together in the same sentence. And so um, I can talk more about that moment since it's going to involve guys like J.P. Moreland and other Talbot folks if you want to. But uh, the goal of the book really is to uh, express some of those things that that meant so much to me in my own life, um, at, in my own pursuit of God, where I came to realize that uh, we're actually commanded. Uh, not only is it that that you know faith in the intellectual life c- can go together, but that it ought to go together and that we're commanded by Jesus uh, to love God with all of who we are and that that's a devotional pursuit mm. not right it's love God um, and 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 that includes loving God with our our minds. Um, so that's the the goal is to communicate, that idea, of course, and sort of disabuse people of this idea that faith and um, you know the intellectual life can't go together or something like that. Um, but it's also to see Jesus in a certain light. So uh, the title is intentional, uh, logic, of course, right? Yeah. Uh, logic in the way of Jesus. <laughs> um, it, it really is trying to see Jesus as not only our moral example to follow, our exemplar, but also uh, intellectual exemplar, and that that that's not you know again sort of contrary to uh, a life of faith, a life of Christian faith, um, that the Christian worldview actually really kind of motivates us. Well, you don't have to convince me about the importance of thinking <laughs> right. Christianly. I know you're not saying this to convince me, but I had a similar moment when I came to study philosophy at Talbot School of Theology. It was like, oh my goodness, thinking Christianly and deeply and using logic is a part of something that all Christians are called to. Now, this surprises people because we often think of Jesus as spending time with kids, wandering through, you know, the hillsides of Israel, telling stories. But you say he's a logician. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, that's to borrow, of of course, a turn of phrase from Dallas Willard, um, who is definitely, you know, I'm standing on some, uh, you know, significant giants here on the shoulders of, not just on them, but on their shoulders. Sure, sure. Uh, Right. And Dallas Willard uses that phrase. And so that's, that's me borrowing him. But um, I don't mean it that 
Jesus gives us a theory of logic or something like that in the way of like Russell or Fraga or Tarski or somebody, uh, the sort of great logicians. Um, it's more, or even Aristotle for that matter, right? Where Aristotle is identifying certain theories and principles of logic. Rather, what Jesus does is he exemplifies it. Um, he, in a very similar way in which he is a moral philosopher, right? This is the one thing everybody can agree on typically with Jesus is that he's a good moral teacher or philosopher, sure. but he's not laying out a normative theory of ethics or something. He is exemplifying and, and teaching and, and sort of teaching us to think, I think, I, I'm arguing that he's teaching us to think well, and of course, morally and all the rest of that too, but um as it as we focus on logic, he's 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 displaying logical brilliance um, all throughout. And this is probably the most surprising thing uh, for me in writing the book was that it was how many times throughout the Gospels people are astonished by Jesus's really intellect at yeah. times. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's yep. like this. It's his teaching, and they're astonished because he's not like taking the traditional rabbinic. Uh, route. He's a he's a carpenter's son, and so on. But they're they're often like, I mean, to put it in more sort of contemporary parlance, uh, they're they have their minds blown <laughs> by sure. by the things that Jesus is is defending and saying and doing. Um, and a lot of times we think, oh, well, that's because of miracles. But actually, when you go through, like I did for in in research and writing for the book, um, what you notice is that they are far more astonished by his teaching than by his signs and wonders though they're of course astonished by those things too but but it's his his display of brilliance that just comes up over and over again that's really uh, astonishing people all the way throughout his life so why is thinking critically like jesus did so important for christians today now of course it's always been important so it's timeless but th is there a timely sense where now maybe more than ever or particularly in this culture it's important that Christians learn to think like Jesus did? I do think so, of course. Um, and part of it is, I think life is perhaps a bit more complicated than it used to be. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's not true, but it, it, it certainly seems that way. Sure. Um, you know, the kinds of moral dilemmas that we have with modern technology and those kind of things, I think does make it such that it's really difficult Um to know what we ought to do and what the the not just the right thing though of course we want that but the the christian thing to do in a particular circumstance and i think it's not easy work uh in a way to uh think christianly about the complexities of life it takes careful thoughtful uh and critical thinking to sort of get there um, and and this is something that I think, Sean, is, of course, near and dear to your heart, too, is that um, so many of us are Christians by accident. Yeah. You know, sort of the accident of our of the home that we grew up in or even the country that we grew up in and, and that kind of a thing. And um, what we need to do, uh, and this is a, a big moment in my life, too, uh, sort of the earlier moment where I really realized that I, I believe that Christianity is true only because I grew up in a Christian home. I really didn't have any good reason uh, to uh, be a Christian other than that fact. And so it really 
drove me to dive into apologetics and 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 that kind of a thing and and all of that involves critical thinking I, you can't really do this work i think without um sharpening our skills of critical thinking so that we're not christians by accident well my my wife we were high school sweethearts and she's seen me grow and develop for a long time but when i was doing the ma phil program she said that was when like my faith just really transformed yeah. the ma phil program at talbot as a part yeah. of biola and really it was a lot of what you do in this book just laying out how do we think carefully how do we use logic and i think Every Christian needs to study this in some depth, not just professors, not just apologists or, or pastors. So walk through one of the things you do in the book is you talk about how we can use logic to evaluate worldviews. Uh, what do you mean by that and what might this look like? Yeah, uh, I agree, uh, first of all, that in uh, and, and, and part the book is written as accessibly as I possibly can because sure. I— I do expect that it'll be used as a textbook in, in classrooms because there's a fair amount of the nuts and bolts of uh, critical thinking and logic in it. Uh, but it, it really is meant to be. And I've had some amazing responses, honestly. Like the book has done uh, decently well so far. And I, I, I in, in particular, and I'll answer the worldview question here really quick. Um, uh, but I had a 93-year-old, or, or a lady get in touch with me and say that her 93-year-old mom is now my biggest fan, and she just <laughs> ate it up, and I, it was awesome. It was just like the That's thing amazing. you want to hear when you're writing a, a logic textbook, right? Right, right. Uh, but yeah, so an important piece to this is that we would evaluate our worldviews. Now, sometimes, so I've been, I've been thinking about and writing about and teaching worldviews for a long time, um, and, and some of these books that I think, you know, well-intentioned almost give you the sense that we're just sort of stuck with our worldview, uh, that whatever worldview you have, that's just kind of, again, sort of accident of your birth and, and so on. But I, I completely disagree. I think that one primary thing that we do, uh, no matter where we end up, is that we should evaluate and sort of approach our worldviews rationally. And I think we can do that precisely because logic is pre-theoretic. And what I mean by that is it's not, um, it's not a matter of our worldview. It can't be because our worldviews sort of uh, express or, or involve uh, logical principles. So one I think we're gonna talk about in a minute is sure. the principle of non-contradiction. Mm -hmm. I think it's the case that when we look at our worldview and we realize that we are believing something that's contradictory, we can thereby say, okay, something's got to give here. I can't believe both P and not P um, because that would be a contradiction. And we wouldn't be able to do that if logic was just a matter of a, you know, sort of Western white male worldview or something to sure. that degree. Uh the principles of logic are are prior to those things in that sense, or they're pre-theoretic. We we take logic and we can bring it to bear on our worldviews and consider their consistency. I talk about in the book that we would want to also look at how well our worldviews explain the world. So if there's something that it can't well explain, then right, that's a problem for our worldview. And then the final thing, and this is of course uh, other people have made these claims too is its livability and the degree to which it 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 produces human flourishing and so on 
one of the cases that I'll make for marriage is that marriage is pre-political. It exists as an institution before politics. So politics and political governments describe it, uh, but they don't create it. It's like yes. gravity. It exists. And you're saying the same thing about logic, that it's pre-theoretical, pre-political. It's a part of how we human beings see the world and so is not dependent upon a particular race or particular religion or particular location. Therefore, we can use it to assess different worldviews. I think that's such a helpful way to look at it. And we do that with consistency. Uh, we do that if it matches up with truth, et cetera. So I love that you walk through that. Let's talk about, you hinted at this, the law of non-contradiction. And to me, if there's any pre-theoretical law that is yeah. inescapable, it's the law of non-contradiction. But for me, when I started to understand this, I actually took J.P. Moreland for apologetics right. as an undergrad, and he really explained this. It unlocks such an understanding for me and has been a helpful tool ever since. So explain what it is and how we might use it more effectively. Yeah, awesome. Um, so the principle of non-contradiction, so there's a variety of these these logical principles that uh, various ones have, um, I would argue, discovered. Again, not created, but discovered. Um, and it, it goes something like this. So this is one, there's a, a few ways to express it. This is the way um, I, I do it in the book. As I say, for any P, and, and what I mean by that is any proposition, statement, or claim, uh, it can't be the case. It cannot be the case that P and not P. And we always qualify this too with at the same time and in the same respect. Right. So you can, what that's supposed to mean, and this is, uh, you know, sort of, don't take my word for it, but try it. Uh, you can plug in any statement or claim into the P spot there, uh, P or not P, and, and you'll see that that just can't be the case. You can sort of look at it intuitively, see that it's not, uh, uh, that, that, that statement would have to be false, right? Um, so, I, you know, but we always qualify it with at the same time and in the same respect, meaning that if I were to say something like Biden is president and Biden is not president, that that looks like I've done a P and not P. Um, but there's a few ways in which we would want to just make sure this is truly a contradiction. If I If I'm referring to two different times, then of course that's not a contradiction or if I mean it in a different respect. So, right, there, we've just got through this cycle where a lot of people have questioned whether or not uh, Trump really did win the election or Biden or whatever. Sure. I probably just, uh, you know, ruined your podcast by bringing this up. But anyway, <laughs> um, right. Uh, but if somebody means something differently by saying, yeah, technically Biden is in the in the Oval Office, but, you know, Trump really truly wants or something like that, then that's not a contradiction. But if we mean it at the same time and in the very same respect or the same meaning, then that is a contradiction. We know that that's false. See, that's really helpful because one of the most common claims against the Bible is that there's contradictions yes. in it. And you look at examples like the number of angels at the tomb. Well, if one says one in Mark and you get to Matthew, it says two. Mark technically says a young man who he knows an angel. People say, ah, a contradiction. I'll right. say, wait a minute. There's a difference, but a contradiction is to affirm and deny the same proposition, like you said, at the same time and in the same way. So technically, if there's two, there's one. 
Now, yes. that doesn't tell us exactly what was going on, but all you have to do is give a possible way to reconcile something, and you realize that there's not a logical contradiction. But until I really thought about the law of non-contradiction, I didn't see some of those things. So another example might be like the Trinity, right? You look at the Trinity and people say, what? There's one God and three persons contradiction, but you're not affirming and denying the same thing in the same way. Because we're talking about one God in being and three persons who share that divine essence. Yep. So different respects. Yep. This is why your book is so valuable, is it's gonna teach Christians how to just see these nuances and then not be taken in by some of these yeah. faulty ideas. Honestly, it, that just understanding the principle itself and then bringing that to bear on the various alleged contradictions in scripture will solve, I would say, 90% of those. I mean, some of those wow. you do have to sort of grapple with them. But sure, sure. Most of them just understanding that it could be referring to different times, it could be referring to different senses, and that's that's most of them. That's good stuff. Let, let's shift and talk about, you have a section on science and the inference to the best explanation. Now, we live in a culture in which, in some ways, feelings seem to trump science, at certain times, but also in our culture, science is still held up as authoritative. When somebody wants to prove something, they say, scientists say, you know, A, B, and C, fill in the blank. So you tell me, what is what is it that Christians or really anybody needs to know in terms of how we can carefully evaluate scientific claims? Yeah. So I think when it comes to science, one of the most important things to understand is that um, there's a difference of scientific data and scientific theory. So the the data are the sort of facts that we're staring at. So that might be lab results or some observation in the world or something to that effect. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come in, or, or what the scientist would do is come in with uh, his or her theories to explain that data. And um, here's where you get a variety of of views. Uh, and, and so in the book, I talk about the kind of inference that is, we call that an inference to the best explanation. And that's a, that's a really powerful, right? It's really important that we sort of get to know that inference because uh, I think we do that quite often. Um, we, we can't find our keys and it's, we start to run through possible explanations of that. And we land on the best one, which usually for me is just, I left it on the, you know, uh, coffee table or something, but, um, uh, we, science really just is that. So when we keep that straight, it helps us because there's definitely some scientific theories that I think are going to be challenges to, uh, Christian faith. Um, but that doesn't mean the data is there. Um, that would thereby be a problem for Christian faith. So mm. um, sorting those out, like what what of this is theory and what of this is like just true, obvious facts, scientific data, I think uh, is actually tremendously helpful. So one of my favorite sections in your book is on fallacies. I uh, used to teach a high school freshman and we do yeah. a logical fallacies book and they absolutely loved it as a whole once they learned it and saw how it applied to life. Yeah. But let's walk through a couple of these. You tell me, for example, uh, which fallacy this is. I'm going to test you, Travis. Ooh. You'll see this. You got this. Explain <laughs> what it is. Uh, for example, there's the slaughter of the innocents in the Gospel of Matthew uh, by Herod at the birth of Jesus. 
And one criticism is that Josephus doesn't mention this. And if it happened, Josephus would. Which fallacy is this? And explain it to us. Yeah. So this sounds to me as if it is the gambler's fallacy. No, I'm just kidding. This <laughs> is the, uh, <laughs> did your heart drop? Yes. I was uh, like, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> this is the argument from silence. I think that's what I call it in yep. the book. Okay. Um, where one is uh, from the absence um, of evidence, one takes that to be evidence of absence. And that's not always the case. Um, right. So some, sometimes it's not to say it's not a challenge because I think even the slaughter of the innocents, there's a challenge there that we need to wrestle with sure. and, and work through. But to thereby conclude that it is uh, from the fact that it's not mentioned that it's um, therefore didn't happen. That's a fallacy of argument from silence. Excellent. All right. One more for Oof. you here. Okay. Is I was having a conversation with a professor at an Ivy League school. We're having a great conversation about faith and evolution came up. And he said, you know, he said, Kai, it's really arrogant that you think you have the truth. What right. fallacy is that? So that is a ad hominem. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I was, I was, yeah, I was pretty confident, but no, that's, that's clearly ad hominem where what you are, when one, um, it, it's interesting, right? Because there's sometimes in which a person's character does matter. Um, you know, so if I'm trying to decide who I'm going to vote for or who I'm going to trust and that sort of thing, I'm, you know, if somebody is a proven say liar or, uh, that kind of thing, like that, that's relevant, but, but this is an example. And I sort of break fallacies up into two different kinds. One is a fallacy of insufficient evidence and the other is a fallacy of irrelevance. And this is when it's a fallacy of irrelevance because, the character of the person in that case doesn't matter for the claim that's being made. It's irrelevant to it. So it's a it's an ad hominem because you're attacking the person rather than sort of like addressing the claim and the argument that's being made. Excellent. Uh, that's exactly Whew. what it is. And uh, <laughs> there's 25 of these. And, <laughs> that's right. Uh, I'm a little the, nervous here. Well, you're doing you're doing great. It's my favorite part of the book because once I started really studying fallacies, yeah. you see them all over the place. You Absolutely. see them in advertising. You see them on social media. You hear them in conversations. It just unlocks such an understanding that I wish Christians would really take the time to learn. And the reality is you can be, you know, speaking of the ad hominem fallacy, if somebody says, you know, you're just so arrogant to think you have the truth, they've shifted from the argument to my alleged character, yeah. which like you said, is irrelevant. You can be arrogant and right. You can be arrogant and wrong. You can be humble and right. You can be humble and wrong. Now, there is a connection, I think, between humility and knowing truth. Yeah. But we have to be careful to not logically dismiss something because of somebody's attitude. So this this section is just great in your book, and uh, and I want to commend you for that. Let me ask you, uh, how, how do you think Christians today, in light of the emphasis you're talking about on careful and critical thinking, can avoid the snare of fake news? Yeah. Yeah. Um... And, and it's indeed a snare. Um, you know, I think it's such an important part of our journey 
again, even if, you know, Christian or not, I think it's important to find uh, reliable guides in life, you know, and I, I look to people that, um, you know, some of which are, you know, faculty members there at Talbot um, that I, I looked, have looked to even in my own struggles. In fact, my, you know, biggest struggle with doubt actually came at Talbot as I was, uh, oh, wow. as I was pressing into the apologetics program. <laughs> Interesting. So it's not, it's not a bad place. I'll just, I'll just report this, that it's not a bad place to doubt your faith. Mm. You got, you got a lot of help around there. So, um, but I was, I needed that. I needed to know that there were some folks out there that had, you know, were sort of further down the journey than me. And had come out, you know, and some really brilliant folks, by the way, and and had come out, you know, faithfully believing, you know, everything that scripture affirms. And so um, the need for reliable guides is just huge in life. And so finding finding those things, and again, that that's going to involve thinking critically about what they say. It's not just to accept everything that they say, but we find those people that we that prove to be trustworthy. Uh, and reliable, and we 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 stick with those guides, and that may not always be the sort of mainstream voice. Um, I think it's actually oftentimes it's not um, the mainstream voice, whatever even the mainstream voice means. And so, but I also want to say this: that there's another side to this too, and that is that we would look and consider the voices of people who disagree with us. And, exactly. and and find sources that again mm-hmm. are reputable and so on um and find people that disagree with you and that you read those folks you you uh dialogue with those folks and listen to what they have to say I, again even if you disagree in fact that's sometimes more instructive than just sort of having somebody you know confirm what you uh already believe and you know, I know Sean, you're you're a great example of this. That you do a lot of dialogues with um, folks out there that that believe differently from you, and you're a great model for us uh, in that. And I just think that's that's the right way to sort of weigh through all the you know wade through all the noise, find those reliable guides, but also find some good dialogue partners that can challenge you in your beliefs. Those are two great pieces of advice. I have a number of voices when it comes to politics that people I find, I'm like, they're less polemical and they're more interested in reporting what they think is true. Everyone has a bias, but they have, feels like they have less of agenda. Yeah. I have people when it comes to a theology and other areas of scholarship, uh, that are that way too. So you're right. They're not always right and correct, but people who care about truth, even when it's inconvenient, and then reading perspectives that are different than your own, two great ways to avoid fake news. Hey, the, your book is great. I want to make sure our, our listeners have an understanding. This is B&H, Brahman Holman Academic. So this is not a light reading on a plane or before bed. <laughs> a beach read. It's not a beach read. Yeah. Like you, I mean, you walk through fallacies like we talked about. You walk through formal logic, non-deductive reasoning. It's understandable to non-specialists. But it's a discipline for somebody to work through this. And I think any Christian who took the time to go through it, I think it would have a significant impact on their own thinking in a profound way. So I hope people will pick it up. But how do you envision your book uh, being used? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I, I like I said, I think for sure it, it's going to work really well. Honestly, it's it's going to it's my textbook for for my intro to logic class. Um, so it's going to work really well for that. I've also had uh, a few high schools. Uh, so you, you said you mentioned you, you mentioned that you taught high school. Yeah. I also taught high school. It's kind of how I got my start. Um, as well. And so I definitely wrote it in such a way that a sort of classical school or a, um, you know, sort of Christian homeschool program might be able to make use of it. Um, right. It's, it's definitely has a sort of college level, sure, uh, student sure. in mind, but, uh, let's be honest, some of our classical high school students are, you know, uh, better than our, uh, typical college students at times. So, um, and I, and I say that as a college professor, sure, but anyway, sure. um, okay. So I, I think it's definitely going to be used as a textbook, but again, I just have had a number of people that, you know, I've almost wanted to like warn them as they've picked it up to say, Hey, just, you know, friends of mine or, 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 got, or folks in my church have picked it up. And I've said, just, I almost want to say like, you know, just know what you're getting or whatever, but they, the response has just been really uh, crazy. They've just really appreciated it. And they've said it's really sort of uh, connected some dots for them and, and so on. So I, I had, I had high hopes that folks just, you know, regular, regular old folks out there would be able to pick it up and read it. And so far the feedback has been very, very good. And so, yeah, it's got, it's got a pretty broad audience in mind, I would say very accessible, very introductory. And so, uh, the hard part is to sort of say what's next because because this is this is really just wetting the appetite and uh, there's a whole lot more to be done after this one. Well, the title of the book again is Logic in the Way of Jesus. And in my endorsement, I said, this is now my top recommendation for a book of its kind. And it is. I uh, We are super proud of you as a Biola graduate. Just your teaching and your writing, making a difference is, is exciting. But also our viewers, we want you to challenge yourself and uh, read something that will make you think and stretch your mind, stretch your brains, logic in the way of Jesus. Thinking Critically and Christianly by Travis Dickinson will certainly do that. Travis, thanks for joining us. You bet, Sean. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We now offer programs in Southern California and totally online, including the Masters in Christian Apologetics, where I teach and Travis went, is now offered fully online. We'd love to have you in our program. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.